Feels like there's so much energy in the room this morning. Do you feel that? Well, there should be. Thank you, worship team. You are excited. Nate Allison, I think you're the one that it, uh, just uh, blurted out that exciting uh, noise. Josh, do you think you could beat him? Okay, all right. We won't try that. Well, it is indeed great to see you today. Welcome to worship. Welcome to those of you joining us online. My name is Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and if this is one of your first times joining us, uh, we would consider it a great honor and privilege if you'd let us know that you're here. And one of the ways you can do that is by taking one of the communication cards that you can find on the seat back in front of you, and you can fill that out. And if you have some free time afterwards, uh, come see us at the Welcome Center. We have a free gift for you just for joining us this morning. For those of you joining us online, all you'd have to do to let us know that you're here is go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on that banner on our website that says, Are You New Here? And there's a form that pops up. If you could com complete that form, that'll come straight to me, and I will connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you also for worshiping with us uh, this morning. Well, today is what we like to call Graduation Sunday. And it's a very exciting Sunday because we like to honor individuals who are completing one chapter of their life and moving on to the next. We're going to be honoring two graduates during first service and two graduates during second service. And I know that one of the graduates just arrived, so I'm so glad that he is here. So I'd like to call these two graduates to the front, if I may, and as they make their way to the front, I'm going to make mention of a few details about them. The first individual will be Isaac Elvis. Isaac, come on up. You can give him an ovation as he comes forward. You stand right here, Isaac. Thank you very much. Our next individual is Mark Mosher. Come on up, Mark. Look at these two good-looking young men. What a bunch of studs. Victory Life Church, we have raised some stud muffins up here. You should be proud of this. Look at that hair that Mark has. Do you think I could grow hair like that? No. <laughs> Mark, no. Sean's saying, don't. Don't try it. You'll look like a convict. I know. I agree. Even my, even my beautician tells me, don't grow your hair out. You'll look really, really bad. But nonetheless... Uh, we want to just make mention of what these two individuals have achieved. First, I'd like to make mention of uh, Mark Mosher. Mark, just kind of wave your hand so everybody knows who you are. Okay, so Mark is graduating high school from Cuyahoga Valley Christian Academy. Mark will be, will be attending Kent State University and possibly majoring in pre-med biology or, or chemistry. And uh, Mark also will be trying out for the hockey team at Kent State. Isn't that cool? Um, can we come watch if you make the team, Mark? Okay, cool. Hockey games are very, very fun. I know hockey requires a lot of skill. And so congratulations, Mark. Can we give him an ovation? That's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> we do have a little gift for you here, Mark. And Isaac, I'm just going to go ahead and give you your gift. And Isaac, you have to hear this, folks. Isaac is graduating from the University of Cincinnati School of Pharmacy. And help me make sure that I get this right. With a doctor of pharmacy degree, I am not worthy. That is so cool. So do we have a doctor in our midst? Are you Dr. Elvis? Holy cow. Congratulations, Isaac. 
That is incredible. And so many of you have seen these two individuals raised up here at Victory Life Church. You should pat yourself on the back for supporting them, encouraging them, and just lifting them up in prayer during, uh, you know, throughout their, their lifetime. Because uh, as I said, they're completing this one chapter of their life and moving on to the next. And as they do this, uh, might we pray for them as they transition into this new phase of their academic career and also professional career with Isaac Elvis? And so can you reach out a hand as we pray for these individuals this morning? Father in heaven, the Bible tells us that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Each person here that stands in front of this stage was made in a way that would lead to this most important moment in their lives. We pray that they would continue on the path that you have for them. And we ask that you would use their experience, their training, their education to advance your purposes in our community, in our nation, and around the world. We thank you for all that you've done in their lives, and we pray that they would continue to be a blessing to the world around them because they have indeed been a blessing to Victory Life Church. We thank you for these two young men, and we ask and pray that you bless them. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, hey, listen, if you come to worship, you guys can go have a seat. Give them an ovation again, folks. Thank you so much, Mark and Isaac, for coming forward this morning. But I did want to transition and give you an opportunity to use the resources God has given you to worship the Lord Jesus. Uh, You can, uh, if you came to worship this morning uh, by giving of your tithes and offerings, you can give online, you can give via text, or you can certainly give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord if that's what you choose to do today. Can you stand this morning? And as we do so, let's bow for a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege to worship you this morning. You have given us so much, and we come this morning to give back to you. We give you our minds, our hearts, and complete attention right now. So we pray that you would meet us here as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord this morning. Let's put our hands together. There's an echoing in the spirit. If you listen closely, you'll hear it. Oh, what a sound is broken. Shackles hit the floor. There's a symphony in the making. There is freedom for the taking oh what a sound is broken people are restored oh what a sound of your people singing here in your house come on let your praise be
Jehovah Nisi fights our battles. Jehovah Jireh meets our needs. Jehovah Rapha heals our bodies. Jehovah Shalom heals our peace. Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi fights our battles. Yes, he does. Jehovah Jireh meets our needs. Jehovah Rapha heals our bodies. Jehovah Shalom heals our feet. Jehovah Rapha Jehovah Nisi fights our battles. Jehovah Jireh meets our needs. Jehovah Rapha heals our bodies. Heals our bodies. Jehovah Shalom heals our feet. Oh. Call the Our God, Jehovah God, is faithful, and all those names of the Lord are true today. Jehovah Nisi fights our battles. Jehovah Jireh meets our needs, and Jehovah Rapha heals our bodies. Jehovah Shalom, he's our peace. God is good. God is faithful. Let's declare those things to him today. Every breath 
Father in heaven, you have been so good to each and all of us in this place today. In fact, I'm thinking of the words of the psalmist this morning who said, we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good because his steadfast love continues to endure forever. Father God, we are benefactors of your love today. And that makes you such a good God. And we know that every good and perfect thing comes from you, our Father in heaven. And one of the best things that comes from you is your love, your willingness to put on human flesh because you loved us. You made your way to us to reclaim our lives. We didn't have to fight our way to you. You found your way to us that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for this. For being so good to us. It's in Jesus' name we thank you for these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, thank you. And you may be seated this morning. Well, today we're going to enter into a time of communion together. If you are a believer in Jesus and would like to participate, we invite you to do so. As you can see, our servers have come uh, this morning, and we'll have servers at the front and also um, in the middle of the sanctuary, and you can exit your rows in just a moment. Uh, before we do that, I would just like to offer a few comments about why we do communion. Uh, you know, there was a well-known statement that the Apostle Paul made in one of the books that he wrote to a church that he started in the city of Corinth. Uh, the book was entitled 1 Corinthians, and he was trying to communicate to this church at Corinth um, about what communion meant. 
and why it was important for believers to do it. And he sought to convey to them the importance of doing this remembrance uh, together because of what Jesus did for them. And these words that he said, they echo 2,000 years later into our hearts and minds uh, today. May I read these words that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. He said, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, which is that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Folks, the reason we take a piece of bread and a little bit of juice and consume it is because we want to remember what God did, not only for this church at Corinth, but for Victory Life Church, for people like you and I. God was willing to put on human flesh, come here to planet Earth and live amongst us to demonstrate how much he loved you. Some of you may come this morning thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't feel very loving this morning. I don't feel like I deserve uh, any credit from God. In fact, I don't even feel like I deserve to go to heaven and be with God for the rest of eternity. Well, God didn't think that way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come here to this place to sacrifice his body on your behalf. So as you come and receive the elements this morning, I'd like for you to just continue to give that your heartfelt consideration about the lengths to which God was willing to go to reach you. And I want to emphasize one point before you stand up to receive your elements, and it is this. Some of you are feeling this morning like you're unreachable. My prayer and my hope for you is that when you consume the elements this morning, that God would make something change in your heart about that belief that you have today. So at this point in time, I'm going to encourage you to come and receive your elements after everyone has received theirs. Uh, We will partake together. We will receive our elements by starting in the first row of each section, and you will come get them. You'll come through the interior and then enter from the outside, re-enter your rows from the outside. Let's go ahead and receive the elements this morning, and we'll take them together after everyone has received theirs.
Well, as you know, Jesus wanted us to take this bread that was a symbolic marker of his body. And there's some interesting scriptures about what Jesus did in his body and what he endured in his body. And may I read these scriptures to you before we partake together. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of Jesus, says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds in his body, we are healed. Can we take the bread together? Also, as you know, this little cup of juice is a symbolic representation of the blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross to give you and I new life. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.13 says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can we take the juice together? 
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your body and blood that you gave for us. Everyone in this world was undeserved of such things. But I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2.4 about why you did it. He said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you chose to make us alive together in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you for giving us new life by what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. For it is in Jesus' name we pray and thank you for these things. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, good morning once again, and welcome to Victory Life Church. So uh, glad this morning to get to honor the Lord Jesus through remembering him in communion. The good news is you do not have to hold on to those cups that uh, you just drank out of. There's a small receptacle in the seat back in front of you. If you'd like to place those there, uh, you can have those there the rest of the service, and our um, team will come and pick those up later on today. Young disciples, you may be dismissed at this time to go on down the hall for our children's church program if you're new to Victory Life. Our children's church program is starting now. You're welcome to go down the hall with them and see where they're headed, and they're going to go ahead and get a little more info on the fruit of the Spirit this morning, and uh, it's been an exciting series that they've been part of. We've been part of a series these past four weeks in the book of Romans, and if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn in them or scroll in them to Romans chapter 2. As we've been talking about the good, good news, the reason that we're in Romans is to take a look at what the Apostle Paul wrote regarding the gospel, because that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news, and to see what Jesus did and just how he did it and why it was important, not only so that we can know the tenets of our faith, the doctrine of our faith, but in hopes that as we learn and look at even more and more that which Christ has done for us, we would be able to share it with other people, be able to go out and tell other people about what we believe, because as we learned two weeks ago, we're not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the mode by which God delivers salvation to people. The spoken word about what Jesus has done is how God makes lives new. So it's important that we know the good, good news. It's important that we're able to convey it to people because it's the power of God for salvation. So we've been looking at different aspects. We're going to look at it all the way through the summer, and we're going to have a great time as we continue to look into what God has for us. Last week, we talked about resonating with folks, elevating their sights on God, and then we're going to rebase people as we say, you know, this is really what God had intended for you all along. And I hope that some of you were able to have those conversations this week where you are able to resonate, elevate, and rebase. We're going to go a different direction this morning as Paul gets into chapter 2 and kind of lays out the reason that we need the good news to be spoken and the reason we need to speak it clearly. I'm not much of a handyman. I try, but I'm not much of one at all. But my father-in-law, when he came into my life about 15 years ago, started like indoctrinating me with a mantra. He'd say, Matt, you can try to fix something at your house two or three times. And if you mess it up the first two times, the third time that you do it might be the time that you fix it. 
And if you fix it on the third time, you've sp still spent less money than if you'd hired somebody to do it. That's his mantra, you know, just try it, just go for it, just see if you can accomplish it yourself. So over the course of time, I changed out a couple toilets, I'd done some plumbing, and I thought to myself with a little small bathroom that we have in the downstairs, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change out the toilet myself. I'm not going to call anybody, I'm not going to call in the reserves, my brother's handy, he helps me with stuff, my father-in-law's an electrician, he's handy, he helps me with stuff, I thought I'm going to change out the toilet myself. And if I mess it up once, I'll do it again. And if I mess it up a second time, I'll do it again. I'll still save money by not calling somebody to do it. So I went into this bathroom. I said, Gina, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do new flooring. I'm going to do, do this toilet. I got this toilet out, got it on the curb, and then I looked down and saw something that I wasn't real happy about. The flange was broken. Now, I don't expect all of you to know what a flange is. But suffice it to say, the flange sits on the drain pipe and it's what keeps your toilet from rocking back and forth and falling over. It affixes it to the floor. The flange was broken. I'd never encountered this before. I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do, but i got to get this flange off, and then I'll go get a new flange. Problem was, this flange was original. It was original to the house. It was 60 years old. And this flange was cast iron, and the original plumber, he had welded this thing onto the pipe. He'd soldered it on, he'd welded it, I don't even know what the right term is. He had affixed it with metal to the pipe. And I thought, I gotta get this thing off or I can't put the new toilet on. So I got down there on the floor and I got my biggest screwdriver and I started going like this. <laughs> and then I broke my screwdriver. And so I said to Gina, I said, I don't know how to do this, but I'm not gonna call anybody, I'm gonna figure it out. And so I went and I got a file. A real thick, you know, file. I'm going to file this metal like I'm breaking out of prison in a movie. And I'm filing this metal. I'm filing, I'm filing, and I'm filing, and I, and I quit. And I said, I'm going to try again tomorrow. Because it was taking me forever, and I was sweating, and it was awful. So on the second day, I was filing, and I'm filing, and I'm filing, and I'm filing, and I broke my file. And I thought, I don't know what to do now. So I went back to Home Depot, and I got a new blade for my Sawzall. And... And it was a metal one. And so I'm sitting in the bathroom. I dulled that blade till there was nothing left of it. The flange was still on. I thought to myself, I will not be defeated. This flange is coming off. And so I went and bought a chisel. Like a straight up little bitty chisel that big. And I hammered this thing. And I hammered this thing. And I hammered this thing. And on day three or four, flange came off. I was proud of myself. I was pumped. And I put on a new flange, and it was plastic, not metal. And I put on the toilet, and it only rocks a little bit. And it's <laughs> little, a little bit, not, not huge. I was telling my father-in-law the story. I said, I did it myself, Dad. I said, I changed that toilet out, but I got to tell you, I had an awful time with that cast iron flange because it was welded or soldered on there. It was on there good as 60 years of rust and metal and, and all that stuff. And, and I was proud of myself. I, used to, I, broke my, I broke my screwdriver and I broke my file and I broke a blade on the sawzall. And, I, and then, I, then I went ahead and got the chisel. And after four days, I got that thing off. He goes, Matt. He says, I'm really glad you did that. But he says, next time, just go to Home Depot and buy the $7 repair part to put over the broken flange. 
Today, that part is going for $6.33 online. Three or four days of pure insanity just because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. There's a lot of different ways to take off a flange, apparently. But the best way is just to put on that piece that's $6.33 this morning. But I didn't know. You know, Paul's going to talk to us from Romans today about the fact that the world is trying every which way to get an eternal reward. God's placed eternity in our hearts, and one of the uh, founding principles of religion is that if I, if I do what my religion says, I'll receive the eternal reward that God has for me. And some religions say you receive the eternal reward this way, and some religions say you, you receive the eternal reward that way, and other religions say this way or that And even within the church, sometimes you can ask people, what is it that brings about salvation, that eternal reward? And you can get some pretty varied answers. And here in Romans chapter 2, Paul's going to say, you know what, folks, even if you've been raised in church, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, Jewish or non-Jewish, I want to make sure that you don't think that the gospel are these things. The gospel is not the screwdriver. The gospel is not the file. The gospel is not the sauce. The gospel... Is far simpler than any of that. There's a simple way to understand what God has done, but it's important that you know what not to do, what not to put your hope in, what not to put your faith in. And today we're going to look in Romans chapter 2 of three things that Paul says is not salvation, not the gospel, not the way to receive that eternal, eternal reward, to make sure that when we share with people the good news about Jesus, we're sharing the right thing. So that's what we're going to look at today, three things that are not the gospel, so that we can make sure that we're sharing the right thing. We're going to jump into the middle of Romans chapter 2 this morning to verse 12. We're going to take this bit by bit, three different bits, and talk about them for just a few minutes as Paul is making his case to the Roman church what they should not put their faith in to save them. Let's read Romans chapter 2, verse 12 and following. Paul writes this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's our first section. Let's stop right there and talk about what Paul says salvation or the gospel is not. Paul talks a lot about this concept of law throughout the book of Romans. Now the law, as it related to the Jewish people, his people which made up a good portion of the people in Rome, was something that was handed down to them by Moses. How many of you remember Charlton Heston crossing the Red Sea and then going up to Mount Sinai, right? If not, you remember the Prince of Egypt doing the very same thing, thanks Steven Spielberg. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments, he also gets the Book of the Law, which is written for us in Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth. And the law that God downloaded to his people through Moses was a law that talked about ethics and morals, what you ought to do. 
The law that he downloaded to Moses had to do with civil law. How do we relate to one another in this new nation that's going to be Israel? And then there was ceremonial law. How do we worship correctly within this temple tabernacle structure of the Old Testament? What Paul is referring to regarding the law here as he writes to this mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles was the moral or ethical portions of the law. He's writing to them about the the good stuff, the stuff that you're supposed to do and the stuff that you're supposed to refrain from. But he's making a case here, and the case is simple. This law of moral code that you know, these ethics that you've had downloaded to you since your childhood, they don't account much for being saved. In fact, he's making the case that the Gentiles know just as much about morals or ethics as the Jewish people do. That's the case that he's making here in verse 15. He's saying, Jewish folks, listen, I know that you have the law of Moses, and I appreciate that that's important to us, but in essence, I want you to know the Gentiles have a law that's been written on their hearts as well. They know when they're doing right, and they know when they're doing wrong to a great degree. And if they really know when they're doing right, and they really know when they're doing wrong, they're really a a law unto themselves. So my Jewish brethren, Paul, is saying, if you think the fact that you know right and wrong is going to save you? The Gentiles know right and wrong. The Gentiles have a law written on their hearts. He even says, on the day when Christ comes to judge, they will have actions that both accuse and excuse them. So, so when you stand before God, oh you Gentiles here today, when you stand before God and God judges the thoughts and attitudes not only of your heart but your actions as well, when, when you stand before God, there's going to be things that God acknowledges that you did, they were right. They excuse you. You did some good things. I'm sure many of us know somebody who does not go to church and wouldn't consider themselves a church person, they wouldn't consider themselves a Christian, but they live in a rather moral and ethical fashion. We know some good people that don't have faith. We know some, some, some moral people who don't have faith. Paul's saying, I do too. So the thought that you know what the law is and that's going to save you, that's kind of silly. Because Paul's making a case throughout the book of Romans that's real, real clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, regardless if they have the law or not. He's going to write in chapter 3 that no one is righteous, not even one. So he's looking at a group of people that would say our morals and our ethics are superior and therefore we trust that we're going to receive an eternal reward. And Paul's looking at them and saying the law won't save you. It just won't. Now why is that important to us as we convey the gospel to other people? Because most folks in the world assume that the law will save them. You say, what do you mean, the law of Moses? No, I don't mean the law of Moses. I mean the law written on their hearts. The idea is very simple, and it's one of the generating principles of most religions. If you do what is right according to our God or our scripture, you will receive an eternal reward. Are not most religions based in this concept? If I do enough good things according to what my God or gods and my scriptures say, my holy scriptures, I will receive an eternal reward. Paul says, no, you won't. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu, it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist Gentile, doesn't matter where you're coming from, following whatever rules you think you ought to follow are not the means, mode, or mechanism of being saved. But there's people in every church, 
in every synagogue and every temple throughout the world today that are under the assumption that they just do enough good things, they'll receive their eternal reward. And Paul's saying it doesn't work that way because every single person is a sinner regardless of the law that they have, regardless of the scriptures that they have, regardless of the holy texts that they have, regardless of the upbringing that they have. Every single person is a sinner. It just doesn't work that way. You cannot be saved through the law. To put a fine point on it in verse 13, he says that we will not be declared righteous or justified before God. Those are two very important words in the understanding of salvation. For those who are righteous can stand in the judgment. Those who have done right all the time could stand up and say, God, I deserve an eternal reward. But he says it's the doers of the law who are justified. Those are the ones who can stand up before God and say, I, I, I should get an eternal reward. The problem is Paul's going to argue, both in this section and throughout the book, there's no one like that. There's no one who's justified in all their actions. There's no one who's righteous in all that they've done. Therefore, if God is righteous and justified in all that he does, how could we hope to stand in the judgment? On the day when Christ Jesus not only judges our actions, but judges, in verse 16, our, our, our minds, our secrets, our intentions, the whole kit and caboodle. I don't know about you, but I do not want to stand before God saying, aren't I righteous? Let me in. I did enough good, God. I'm a decent person. Let me into heaven. Give me an eternal reward. I don't want to stand before God that way. The good news is no one has to. That's one aspect that people believe will save them. That, that's the, the broken screwdriver of salvation. They think they know what they're doing, but it's really not going to help them in the long run. And Paul now moves on to a second aspect of things that are not salvation. Look at verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking it. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ugh. Now Paul is being pretty hard on his Jewish brothers and sisters at this point. He's wanting to disabuse them of a certain number of ideas that they have. And since the church in Rome is a mixed church of both Jews and Gentiles, he's going after everybody. Paul can certainly go into the room and go over like a lead balloon regardless of your heritage. That's what he's doing here. He's letting everybody know, whatever you think saves you is not what saves you. Whatever you think is going to fix the problem, it's not going to fix the problem. And now he goes a little bit deeper into knowledge. He goes to a different place with these people, not just the idea that they have the law and can say, I try to do good things, but that they know the law and try to instruct the world in it. And Paul says, knowledge isn't going to save you either. 
This passage becomes very, very different if we read it sarcastically. You ever tried to read the Bible in sarcasm voice? Well, if you haven't, I'm going to do it for you today. But if you know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Ugh. Don't you, I don't want to say hate, this is being recorded. Don't you not stand, can't stand folks who think they are superior based on their knowledge. But there's a world of people who are out there today thinking that the knowledge that they have in religious instruction will save them. And Paul is going at those who think they're knowledgeable, think they're brilliant, think they know all the things, think they can teach everybody else what the right things are. He's going after them and he's saying, hold on a minute. As knowledgeable as you think you are, as wise as you think you are in the things of God, as knowledgeable as you think you are about God himself, there's still a problem, you're a sinner too. You can be enlightened and wise and enlightened and wise and know all the things, but you're still a sinner. I stand before you as a pastor who's had the blessing and benefit of having gone to four years of Bible and theology school and three years of Master of Divinity school and studied the Bible to the hilt. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. I know that I do wrong, but there were people in Paul's circle who were so convinced of a righteousness based in enlightenment or knowledge, he needed to disabuse them of that notion. And there are religions that are founded around this too, are there not? Aren't there, aren't there religions founded around the idea that if I can just get to the next state of knowledge and enlightenment, I'll be saved? I'm going from room two to room three. I'm going from stage one to stage four. I'm moving up the chain of enlightenment and brilliance. And if I can just get into the next stage of knowing things, I'll be saved. See, Paul's not only just hitting his religion, he's hitting all the religions of the world. And that we have these ideas about what will save us that just won't do it. The moral code won't save us and knowledge won't save us because we still have the problem of sin. We can't stand before a righteous God and say we were justified in our actions. And so he goes ahead and he hits his friends and his brethren again. He says, you who teach people not to steal, do you steal? Now, if I asked you today, if this was like a blind survey, I'm like, do you steal? Every single one of you would be like, no. No, I don't steal. But if I were to ask you, all right, I really want you to think about this. Is everything you do financially completely above reproach? Really think about that. Are there any gray areas in your finances? When the teller at the supermarket forgets to charge you for that pack of gum, do you run right back in and say, hey, you didn't charge me for that pack of gum? When the waiter or the waitress gives you something for dinner and it doesn't show up on your bill, do you go, score? Or do you say, no, I, I don't, I don't want to go ahead and get those free onion petals. I need to pay for those. That's not right. Do you say to yourself, oh, that's a big business. They're fine. They're rolling in cash. Or do you operate, operate in righteousness? Do you borrow things with no intention of returning them? 
Do you use other people's things and put mileage and, and wear and tear on them so you don't have to use your own? Oh, folks, it's very easy in this life to steal. Have you ever moved your neighbor's boundary marker, as the Old Testament likes to talk about? I'm going to go ahead and put that privacy fence another three feet to the left. They'll never know. Folks, the human heart is dark. And even those who know what is right can get into gray areas really, really quick. He goes on to say, for those of you who want to teach, do you commit adultery? And we've learned through the Lord Jesus that adultery is not simply a matter of physical action. Adultery is a matter of the heart and the mind. So for those of you who are married in this place, you might say to yourself, I would never go out on my wife. I would never go out on my husband. But Jesus elevated adultery to the level of the emotional state and the mental state of going out on our spouse. Do you commit adultery, says Paul. And finally, he says, you who abhor idols, I mean, you who know that Jehovah God, I am that I am God, cannot be rendered in stone or in wood or in a picture. You who know that God should not be made into a graven image, do you rob temples? And scholars have tried to figure out what that means, like, were, were, were folks in Rome just going in and like stealing things out of temples? Most likely not, even though there was one occurrence of that in 19 AD. Paul is trying to cast a very wide net for religious and church folks. Do you rob temples? It makes more sense to understand that the idea of temple is the place of worship. And therefore, you who claim that I know all the right things there is to know about God, do you really make sure that you are right in terms of the place of worship, do you give God all that he is due? And of course, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, we learn that when the place of worship is not given its due, the Lord God asked through his prophet Malachi, will you rob God? And uses this same term. So you who are righteous, you who know the will of God, you who can instruct other people in the Bible, do you really give God all that God is due in your finances? Do you see the wide net that Paul's casting? He says, you can know all the right things, but do, do you sin in any of these categories? And Paul could go on, but as he casts this wide net, he wants people to know just knowing stuff doesn't make you righteous. And this was the idea that so many people had at that time. Enlightenment will get me there. There was a book that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the Book of Wisdom or the Book of Wisdom of Solomon. It couldn't have been Solomon's wisdom. He'd been dead for about 600 years or 800 years at the point that it was written. And so it's not in our Bibles today. But it was a very popular book. Just think Max Licato of the 2nd century B.C. All right? And this is what it said in the Book of Wisdom regarding eternal life. It says, to know thee is complete righteousness. Did you see that? To know thee is complete righteousness, and to know thy power is the root of immortality. So this idea that if I know the right things, I'll have eternal life, I'll have salvation, it was being promulgated throughout the ancient world. And it's still promulgated in our world today, maybe not through Judaism, but certainly through other religions. If you just get to another stage of enlightenment, you'll be saved. And Paul says that's not going to work because we're still sinners. And that leaves us in peril. Last thing, verse 25. Now for those of you who are new to church... Here we go. We're going to talk about circumcision. You're welcome. I'll explain this in just a minute and as quickly as I can this morning. Verse 25, for circumcision 
indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, that's the law, and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Hold on a minute, that's insane. Verse 28, I'm going to read it again. Circumcision is not outward and physical. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul wants to hit one final aspect of what won't save you. He's moved, if you will, from the screwdriver to the chisel to the sawzall, and it still is not going to work. Religious observance won't save you. Religion won't save you. Now, this is wild, because if you follow the pattern of the Old Testament, and you follow what is really going on, you have this one, one path by which God has called Abraham, and he's reestablished a relationship with one man who will trust him, and said, Abraham, if you trust me all the way, I can bless all the nations of the world through you. I can bring about salvation. In the midst of that is a parallel path, a path by which God calls a people, And he demonstrates our need of a savior. They're called the Israelites or the Jewish people. He's going to demonstrate their need of a savior. And he's going to do so by giving them the law and calling them out to be a light into the world. But they can't follow the law. They can't do it. So we have this path as well. We have these parallel paths of salvation and Jewishness that are going on here. And Paul is highlighting the parallel paths that we've got this path here. And we're going to see this in chapter 4 of salvation. But we have this path here of our need for salvation. And it's this path. The path of salvation that Paul now begins to attack. Because it was to Abraham that God gave the covenant of circumcision. He said, Abraham, you and all your males after you need to be circumcised as a sign of the relationship that you have between me and you. That you will bear in your body a physical mark for the rest of your days that says without a shadow of doubt that I belong to God and my life and my prosperity and the very fact that I will have progeny is is related to the fact that I have a relationship with God entrusted in faith. There is the covenant of circumcision. It was not a normal ancient world practice. It was given to the Jewish people as a mark that they served and trusted Yahweh God or Jehovah God that we sang about in our second song today. It predated the law. And Paul says you can be circumcised and still be in peril because you're a sinner. You can observe the most sacred rites of the faith and still not be saved. You you can go ahead and, and observe the sacraments, if you will, and not be saved. This is huge. This is massive. Because there are folks who could have, in this very room, participated in the most sacred sacrament of our faith, reminding ourselves that we are saved through the work and salvation of Jesus in communion and not really know God, not truly be saved. Because if a Jew is not saved through circumcision, could it be that we as Christians are not saved through our religious observance either? 
that just doing something doesn't make you saved. He says you're not a Jew outwardly, you're a Jew inwardly. When he says circumcision is not outward and physical, that sounds crazy. It certainly is outward and physical. Yet, he says that's not what saves you. What saves you is what's going on in here. And this gets us to the very essence of what God has done in Christ Jesus. He doesn't save us by making us better little law keepers. And he doesn't save us by taking us to the next phase of enlightenment. And he doesn't save us merely because we do things that look religious. Paul is arguing that God will save you by his spirit and in your heart. That's the gospel. That the work that Jesus did on the cross for you is not conveyed when you keep the rules. The work that Jesus did on the cross for you is not conveyed when you know more about him. The work that Jesus did on the cross for you is not conveyed merely by a religious observance. But the work that Jesus did for you will be conveyed in your heart by the Spirit of the Lord. That God wants to do something internal, not external. That God needs to change you in here to save you, not have you do something out here to save you. That is the essence of salvation as proclaimed in the gospel. Nothing you can do out here can save you. Only what God can do in here can save you. And then Paul, just, just, just to make sure they don't miss his point as the Jewish people, says his praise is not from man but from God. Meaning salvation is not from human ideas about salvation. If I just do enough good things, I'll be saved. If I just know enough stuff, I'll be saved. If I just observe enough stuff, we'll be saved. No, our praise is in God. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's goodness, God's knowledge, God's understanding of what needs to happen to save us, that is ultimately what the gospel is all about. The word Jew means praise. Did you know? His Jewishness is not from man, it's from God. His praise, the the idea that, that, that there is reasons to praise and honor God for his salvation rather than look at all these man-made things for salvation is massive. Just this little phrase, his praise is not from man but from God, signifies once more that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's higher, he's better, he's greater, he's more righteous than we will ever be. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, as you convey the gospel to the people whom you love, do you want to tell them that they need to start following the rules? That's not winsome. But for those of you who have been saved by Jesus Christ, don't you want to follow his law because you love him? For those of you who want to convey the gospel to other people, do you want to tell them, I know something that you don't know, and therefore I'm saved? Well, in some ways you do, but that's not what saves you. And all knowledge and enlightenment, all study of Scripture and desire to go into the deep things of God, that's not a way to salvation, it's a fruit of salvation. 
and you're not saved here this morning because you participated in communion. You're saved this morning because by the grace of God, we're remembering what Jesus has already done in your spirit. And this is what you can call a lost in a dying world too. The Lord Jesus wants a personal relationship with you, friend. It's not about religious observance or rules or knowledge. It's about the very fact that God's Spirit wants to dwell in you, changing you and making you new. That is salvation. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we don't look at the religions of the world with haughtiness today, with judgment. For today there are churches that would call themselves Christians that are preaching a salvation from righteousness. There are churches that call themselves Christians who are somehow acting as if some greater knowledge will bring about salvation. And there are churches that call themselves Christian today who are acting as if observing the things of faith will bring about salvation and they will not. So Lord, help us not to be haughty. Help us not to be judgmental. But help us instead, Lord, to recognize that the work of salvation is done in our heart by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that it is a gift from you. And you want to change us from the inside out. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming running after each one of us. Thank you for changing our hearts and making us new. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room today who has not experienced that heart change, that you would begin by your spirit to speak to them. And they would call out to the Lord. Maybe for the first time and say, God, I need you. I'm not saved by being here. I'm saved because you are here. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who want to share with others. Would you help us, Lord? not to call people to a set of principles or concepts, but to point people to Jesus, who wants a relationship with them and can rewrite their life story. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand today? It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Since we had communion and some special observances today, we're going to have to exit this place with haste. Otherwise, the second service people will crush you with their desire to get into church and start worshiping. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You don't have to leave fast. But it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Congratulations once again to Mark and Isaac. We're so excited for them. It's been good to worship in communion through the word and through this worship and song today. Hey, we encourage you once again, don't just take this knowledge with you that we've shared today but make sure you take it with you with the express purpose of sharing what you've heard today with another person. God bless you.